0: I'm Laura Baker, and I would like for you to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church from the Gospel of John. Later, Jesus again was manifested to the disciples at Lake Tiberias. This is how the appearance took place. Assembled were Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's children, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going out to fish. We'll join you, they replied, and they went off to get into their boat. All through the night, they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus was standing on the shore, though none of the disciples knew it was him. He said to them, Have you caught anything, friends? Not a thing, they answered. Cast your net off to the starboard side, Jesus suggested, and you'll find something. So they made a cast and caught so many fish that they couldn't haul the net in. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, cried out to Peter, "'It is the teacher!' Upon hearing this, Simon Peter threw off his cloak, he was naked, and jumped into the water. Meanwhile, the other disciples brought the boat to shore, towing the net full of fish. They were not far from land, no more than 100 yards. When they landed, they saw that a charcoal fire had been prepared with fish and some bread already being grilled. "'Some people bring some of the fish you just caught,' Jesus told them." Simon Peter went aboard and hauled ashore the net, which was loaded with huge fish, 153 of them. In spite of the great number, the net was not torn. Come and eat your meal, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Savior. Jesus came over, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This marked the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after being raised from the dead. When they had eaten their meal, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Rabbi, you know that I'm your friend. Jesus said, feed my lambs. A second time, Jesus put the question, Simon, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Rabbi, you know that I'm your friend. Jesus replied, tend my sheep. A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, do you love me as a friend would? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked, do you love me a third time? So he said, you know everything, Rabbi. You know that I am your friend. Jesus said, feed my sheep. The truth of the matter is, when you were young, you put on your own belt and walked where you liked. But when you get old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will put a belt around you and take you where you don't want to go. With these words, Jesus indicated the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Seated. (laughs) Let me open with a prayer um, today from author Glenn Jordan. Let's pray together. Risen Christ. Provider of breakfast after fruitless struggles of night. O restorer of purpose after agonizing loss of hope. Renewer of confidence after the burning humiliation of denial. You engage our great absence with beautiful abundance. Appear again as you did once before those disappointed disciples on the shores of Galilee. Allow me to recognize you in your quiet words of invitation. Come, come and eat with me. Know that I love you, Lord, though probably not as much as I should or as I display. And let us hear again your gentle call follow me, follow me, feed my sheep. It's in your holy name we pray, amen. Well, as we get to the end of John's gospel, we start hearing of these resurrection stories, and it's thought that John's gospel ends with chapter 20, which is the one we looked at last week, if you were here. John 20 is about Jesus appearing to the disciples. They're in this locked room and they're freaking out. And Jesus shows up um, and shows his wounds, his sides, and his life to the disciples. And it says, For for those who see and believe, amazing things, but for those who, who do not see and believe, it, the things that are possible, the things that were impossible are possible. It's a perfect way to just kind of close the gospel. You can just see it being like book in done. And then we get John 21, kind of out of nowhere, maybe added on later by John as an epilogue. We hear this kind of intimate story of Jesus with his disciples. The writer, the Gospel of John, organizes John in these kind of seven astounding signs of what Jesus did when he was here on earth. Here are these amazing signs, and it starts with this first sign of turning water into abundant wine. Not just a little bit, but an abundance of wine in John 2, the wedding at Cana. And then here in John 21, it returns to this exact same theme of abundance in the midst of apparent scarcity. Like bookends, these two signs invoke plenty of life and abundance throughout the gospel. It's like John is saying, you you are in a new era of life, in a new time of love and mercy. It will be, as the whole gospel said, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Whenever I want to pause and realize just the gratitude and the beauty of life, or whenever I'm in my kind of deepest ditch of doubt and unbelief, sometimes I just repeat that promise, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Our creator has a way of always reminding us that the places that we claim and believe in scarcity, that there's just not enough, so make sure you hold on tightly to what you have, There is abundance. In the places where we are afraid and feel a great absence in our soul, in our relationships, in our life, God says, I see that. There is a deep presence that I will come and meet and dwell with you. In our empty tombs, the places of death, the gospel is proclaiming it is in those exact places and from those places that we believe and hope in new life. And so we hear this strange kind of ending, and I wonder what it's like to put ourselves within it. Assembled were Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going out to fish. Well, we don't have anything better to do. We'll join you, they replied. And they went off naked to get into a boat. I added that part because it's added later. We'll get to that. The disciples go back fishing. This is what most of them started from. This is their beginning, and they kind of go back to it. And it's usually used at this point from preachers to kind of shame the disciples and just say, look, here they go again. Like, they're too scared. They just go back to what is normal. They go back to their life. They're not willing to risk their life for Jesus. Will you go out and live in this world, or will you just go back to your normal? I don't know, I think that is one way of reading it, and it's not a bad way, but I wonder if there's other layers to this whole thing. They're ashamed for running back to their formal life, to maybe that which is comfortable, back to the place they restarted. It seems like a regression in one way. After they had experienced this risen Christ, why why do they seem like they regress? The trauma of his death, they experienced the shock of his resurrection. And to that, Simon Peter, in a holy way, says, I'm going out fishing. Now, I personally think that's a holy response to the whole thing, but that's just because of my own love for the river. I want, you to, I want to remind you what the disciples went through and what we as a church, when we went through Holy Week, went through. The story that we walked through and the story we walked through in our own lives. Not too long ago, Jesus was in an upper room just with the disciples, sharing his life, taking off his garment and washing their feet. Jesus was crying in a garden, and they couldn't stay awake for him. They were there when he was arrested by a mob, an innocent man arrested and taken. Peter followed and watched the whole thing. And in the midst of it, he, he denies his best friend, his rabbi, his teacher, his life. He denies himself. They see him be crucified. They stare suffering directly in the face. They see and experience in their own ways trauma. And so they lock themselves in a room, afraid that they may be next. So instead of maybe shaming the disciples for going back to their other lives, I wonder if there's a different way to read this. In your life, what do you do after you've experienced stared suffering in this space or experienced a trauma that just shook you to the core? One of the hardest things to come to terms with after a traumatic event in our life is the fact that life just keeps going on. I remember my own story after experiencing um, a trauma and kind of witnessing it in my own life and just being completely broken. I remember like shaking as as I went into a target. And I remember being so angry at all the people that were just going back to normal life. It's like, I'm like, shouldn't we just stop everything for a moment and just like everyone recognize how broken this whole thing is? Here you are buying toilet paper and candy bars, and and the whole world is falling apart. But the disciples go back. They leave their locked doors, their stuck place, and they enter old patterns. I believe it is these old patterns that must be picked up again, if only to be put in place for some framework to give us some grounding in the midst of our suffering and trauma so that everything doesn't fall apart. This returning to fishing could be considered as a tremendous act of courage. They got out of bed, they got out of their room, and they started to try to continue with the life, not knowing what was going to happen. It is often the case that repetition of familiar rituals help restore some shape of order in the midst of the disorder of our confused minds and our broken hearts. To be honest, it's one of the reasons that we do worship every Sunday. It's one of the reasons that, you know what, it might be a little bit boring, but we go through the same things again and again and again. And we don't do it alone. They don't go and fish alone, but we gather together in a liturgy, in a gathered community of worship. And we do it in the midst of a world that is completely chaotic. Not to escape from it. But as an act of courage to say, you know what? The chaos will not overcome me. I'm going to step into some place of order, some place of hope, some ritual act. This is why sometimes gathering around a table and sharing a meal can be the most healing things that you can do. But we're afraid of them. They scare us. But God invites us, I think through these Disciples' courageous act. To, to, it's okay to go through life normally sometimes, even when we're hurting. We're not called to be stuck there. We're not called to disengage, but to pick up and just take one more step, one day at a time. This is what the disciples do. So they go to what is normal, and guess what? God finds a way of meeting them in that space. The divine shows up. All through the night, they caught nothing, so it wasn't going that well. After daybreak, Jesus was standing on the shore, though none of the disciples recognized Jesus, and he said to them, Have you caught anything, friends? Not a thing. Thanks, man, they answered. Cast your nets to the other side, Jesus suggested, and you'll find something. So they made a cast and caught so many fish, they couldn't haul in the net. Then the disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is probably John, nice way of writing yourself in, the disciple who Jesus loved cried out to Peter, It's the teacher! Upon hearing this, Simon Peter threw on his cloak. He was naked and he jumped into the water. There is a theme after the resurrection of Christ a theme that I think plays in our life after the resurrection of Christ where the disciples again and again do not recognize Jesus. Mary didn't see Jesus right outside of the tomb. She thought he was a gardener until Jesus gently and beautifully said one simple word, her name. And her eyes opened up. Two disciples were walking home and they're talking to this third one. This third person, they're talking to Christ, about Christ, but they did not recognize Christ until he simply broke some bread, their eyes opened, and they recognized him. And now Peter and the other disciples do not recognize him until they experience a shift from emptiness, from the emptiness of their net and their lives, and they are filled with a life of abundance. And the moment they like feel the spark of life within them, they go, wait, that's Jesus. I've been around this type of person before. That's Jesus. Let's go to him as fast as we can. Jesus is found and recognized in our everyday lives, but I think we don't see him. And this. This passage and the Mary passage and the disciples passage is asking us to live into this to live into this resurrection life is to recognize and see Jesus in our everyday life. When we walk through our lives, our relationships, our everyday moments, missing the presence of the universal Christ that is right before us. When I wake up in the morning, which is a miracle in and of itself, when the sun has risen again, when I smell the fresh cut grass. When I hear the movements of kids and dogs slowly beginning to rise up, I wonder, maybe Christ is near in the midst of all of this. When I'm making a fresh cup of coffee, grinding the beans, boiling the water, realizing that much of the world maybe went through this exact same ritual that I'm doing, they've already done it today. I wonder, maybe Christ is near. I simply move to take out the trash Embarrassed that I'm wearing my PJs when I wish I was wearing my jeans, because I run into my neighbor and we begin to have an awkward conversation about his day and his last week which was just stressful. We talk about the rain and everyday life. And I wonder if Christ might be near. We go through our daily routines, bumping into each other, bumping into creation, simply doing the beautiful work of being humans. Getting dressed, clocking in, changing diapers, packing lunches, riding our bikes, having small conversations, just like the same conversation that Jesus has over breakfast. And I wonder, through it all, through all of just the normal things that we call life, do we recognize the presence of Christ, the divine that is within and all around us, filling the spaces as we share meals and life around a table? Do we see God? Do we see Christ in others, in our everyday, and in our routines? Do we recognize him? Do we see love acting and moving through our consciousness and through our everyday lives? This passage says, open your eyes to seeing him. The disciples continue on. They see him in the midst of being completely empty, I mean, the image of they can't catch anything, they've been fishing all night, it's hot outside, Peter is just naked, he has nothing to offer the world, is when Christ shows up. Man, I hope that's true. I need that to be true. That these are the moments that Christ shows up in our life. It's worth noting who John points out are the people who show up to Jesus and have breakfast this morning. These three fishermen, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, writer Wes Howard Brooks writes, the Johannite disciples who are named here share a common trait, these three men. They have each revealed their doubts about, about their relationship with Jesus. Peter denied Jesus not too long ago. Thomas He demanded that he see physical proof of Jesus. And Nathanael, in the very beginning of the gospel, had doubts because he said, Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. They all three doubted in different ways, very specifically. And at the same time, these are the ones who make some of the most clear confessions of who Christ is to them. Peter said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Holy One of God. Thomas said, you are my God, you are my Lord and my God. Nathaniel said, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. I think many of us find ourselves in good company with these three. Fragile, tentative followers of Jesus. We are capable of believing and doubting often at the very same moment in time. It's just what's within us. And we may harbor suspicion showing up to Jesus again that Jesus maybe doesn't have concern for us, for our everyday moment-to-moment life. Maybe it's not special, unique, passionate for enough for him. To all of that, our doubts, our stumbling, our traumas, our fear, Jesus lays out a table of radical invitation and hospitality and simply says, come and eat with me. Come, share life with me. My friends, no matter what you have done in your life, no matter maybe what you have done in your life, Christ is saying to us all, you are invited into new life, into hope, into presence and community with me. You're not only invited, but you're you're actually empowered to participate. I want to use some of your fish. I want to use some of your gifts to offer this life I have for you to go and feed and care for others as well. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Simon says, yes, Rabbi, you know that I'm your friend. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. A second time, Jesus put the question, Simon, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Rabbi, you, you know that I'm your friend, right? Jesus replied, tend my sheep. A third time, Jesus asked, Simon, do you, love, do you love me as a friend would? Peter replies, Jesus, you seem a little codependent. You need affirmation. So yes, I love you a third time. So he said, you know everything, Rabbi, and you know that I'm your friend. Jesus said, feed my sheep. The truth of the matter is, when you were, were young, you put on your own belt. You walked where you liked. You went. But when you get old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will put a belt around you and take you where you do not want to go. With these words, Jesus indicated the kind of death in which Peter would glorify God. Then the Savior said, follow me. Jesus lights a small charcoal fire. He invites Peter, all of who he is, his doubts, his denials, his belief, to this space. Peter quickly remembers. This is what happens in trauma. Sometimes our senses get heightened. I'm sure that Peter remembers, oh, you remember the last time I was standing by a fire? That annoying kid came and asked me, don't you know that guy? And Peter said, no. I can just see him staring into one fire and staring into another fire. Thinking through, oh, I remember three times when I denied you. But now by this fire of grace, Jesus restores Peter back to himself. Not just back in relationship with Jesus, but back to who P- Peter was created to be. It's a returning to himself through Christ. Peter asked, Jesus asked P- Peter twice, do you love me? Do you agape? Do you unconditionally love me? Is the word that is used. Jesus uses the word agape. Peter responds with the word phileos, the brotherly love. He says, do you unconditionally love me? Yeah, I love you like a brother. Do do you unconditionally love me? Yeah, 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 I love you like a brother. That's their first interactions. The third time Jesus goes, Peter, do you love me like a brother? He's like, yeah, I love you like a brother. Rather than heaping shame and guilt on Peter for such, such time as this, I think Jesus just humbly steps down to Peter's level and said, you know what, brotherly love, let's start there. And then we'll move from there and we'll grow. We can start here with blood or love and then move into the unconditional love that you have never tasted or imagined or do not know and I will lead you to that place. Jesus was prepared to forgive such a terrible abandonment that Peter made and I find that remarkable. I think we just expect Jesus to be forgiving. But do we really believe that he is for us, for our broken stories, repeating traumas? Jesus is willing to reinstate the friendship and do so at a pace by the one who abandoned him that that honestly I just find astonishing. But we've come to know this is just the nature of the Jesus way. This is why we're so attracted to this way. This nonviolent, restorative way in which Jesus just meets us in our everyday moments, meets us where we're at, and leads us to a grace upon grace upon grace. And he not only restores him by saying, you know what, I forgive you. I love you and you love me. But he restores him by saying, and now here's how I've shaped you to be. I want you to go into this world and instead of feeding your ego and your own life, Instead of clothing yourself and taking care of yourself, I want you, one who is forgiven and loved, to go and to feed other people. Many of us in this room have suffered abandonment or betrayal at the one we considered friend and family. We all find forgiveness and restoration difficult, if we're honest. Impossible. Because restoration to be honest, is a two-way street. You can't do it for both people. It demands a safe and honest relationship. And I'm very aware of, when I stand in this place of power with a microphone, that sometimes trauma can be deepened by well-meaning humans like me who demand that you go into this world and forgive and reconcile with other people. That may not be where your story is at this morning. But I think together as a community, we long for forgiveness. We long for a restoration of all things. And so I want to offer maybe just even some practices of how do we step into this way of Jesus. First, I think sometimes we just put ourselves at the table with him. We don't bring all the other stories. We just put our life with Christ and said, let's just, let's talk about what's going on here. And I think we can offer that space to others as well saying that this is for you to work on in your life. I think this is where going fishing helps when we practice those forms of ritual, those kind of deepening ways, when we practice restoring difficult relationships and saying goodbye to grievances. Maybe maybe by just writing a prayer out in a journal is an amazing way. We kind of go back to this way and we we write something out to kind of get it outside of us so that it quits taking over us. We write a song of lament because this is the space that, Christian, that um, Scripture has given us, that we can cry out, we can lament to God of our hurts and our pains, our angers, our desire for revenge, and God says, yeah, put that down. I want to hear and listen to that. We can often disclutter, we can like clean our space, our physical space at times as a, as a ritual, as a way of kind of saying, I want to go back to the ground of who I am. We can go back to these communal practices as ways to experience external acts of forgiveness, moments of reconciliation. But it's not just in those moments that God leaves us, but he empowers and grows us. Not that we just receive forgiveness, receive a restored life, but that we go and be people of reconciliation, of restoring in this world. I've been doing a lot of reading in the last uh, month or so on some of the 12-step programs, and one of, the ones I've, one of the prayers that I've been amazed by is this 12th step. After you've gone through this massive, long, tenuous process that happens every single day, it ends with having had a spiritual awakening, having recognized Jesus in this world, as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message out to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Having awakened my life to Jesus in this world, Jesus sends me out to others. Just as Peter has said, you know what? In the beginning, you used to dress yourself. You used to do what you want. Your daily schedule was about you. Now, your life gets to be about other people, feeding them, stretching out your hands for them. If you love me, make that love tangible, Jesus says. Go and care for others. Jesus looks Peter in the face. He accepts him, he receives him, he restores him. Something that I know we so deeply need. And he sends him to live a life that is not about him, but is about a surrender to God and a feeding of all of God's people, of humanity, of creation, of all things. And so can we recognize Christ, awaken? Can we heal and feel the restoration? Can we stretch our hands and life out like Christ did so that we may love and feed other peoples? This is a life work, not just a Sunday morning moment. It is a way in which Jesus calls us to move and to follow him. And it happens in your
0: everyday, normal life. Let's pray.